again. Thank you for tuning in to the Attack and Release show again. My name is Sam Moses. I am with my good friend Matthew Garber, who is also a master and engineer. And today we want to talk about how you should prepare a mix for mastering and what to expect with that. And we also want to talk a little bit about vinyl and what you need to know about that as well to get yourself some cool vinyl. (laughs) Keep it rolling. We're keeping it. We're keeping the intro. This is awesome. And get yourself some cool vinyl. Matthew, are you ready to talk about all that? Let's do it. (laughs) Excellent. So in my experience, Matthew, I've found that most the people that send me mixes to master don't really have a great understanding on what they should do um, with their mix to prepare it for mastering. So maybe you can help explain to our audience uh, kind of what they should expect or what they should deliver to a mastering engineer. And also within that, how to create uh, a good relationship with the mastering engineer and what that even means. Yeah, sure. And I think... Uh, there is a, well, in mine and Sam's list there, we, we have a beforehand tab, and this definitely requires a beforehand section. <clears throat> and our first bullet point in here is do not be afraid to communicate your expectations to the mastering engineer and al- along with that, any reference tracks. Yeah. Um, I mean, super important, just like, hey, let me know what you're listening to so I right. can, like, because that, that's more than likely what you had in mind, or, hey, yeah. what do you want this to sound like? If you want it to sound like nothing else, then say, hey, get weird with it. Right. But if you do want it to sound like something, or, like, things that you listened to, things that inspired you, um, then please send those forward. But always just, like, keep, like, an open door with the mastering engineer. There are too many times when, uh, they're, when I'm contacted and people say, oh, hey, here's a project, uh, need it by X date, and then that's right. all I have. Yeah. And uh, Sam encouraged me to do this, and um, and mainly because he has one, and it's to create a mastering checklist yes. for all of your clients. So on my mastering checklist, uh, first and foremost, it says, please double-check spelling yes. and all information. If please you have any that. questions... Please feel free to ask. Why this is important is in your track listing, if you send me a track and there's supposed to be an exclamation point, but instead the shift button was released and there is a one after whatever you wrote, then on your metadata, DDP, all your stuff that's going to be read like on any CD player, it's going to have a one instead of an exclamation point because that's what you wrote. And everyone's going to be like, why is that there? And, uh, because of a silly little spelling error. So right. uh, if, above all else, please double-check spelling. So, um, But then, obviously, just on, going down the checklist, you have artist, album title, genre, track listing, um, so your sequencing of tracks. Uh, who's getting credit on the track? Is any DDP for physical pressings? Is that needed? Uh, we'll get into the, what that is later. Yeah. What formats are needed? Are instrumentals needed? Uh, what label is the... Uh, is this being recorded under? If no label, then you can just put independent. ISRC codes, UPC codes, we'll get into that later. Uh, sonic references, we just touched on that. And then specifically, any expectations you have. Like what are your like hopes yeah. and dreams for the mastering process? Um, 
budget, who to invoice, and then communication. Um, we'll get into budget at the first part of the next section, but right off the bat, just being forward with people and saying, what is your budget for this project? Right. To one really even let you know if, like, this is a project that you should take on. Right. And, yeah. like, like, where to work and how to go from there. So all of that's important, but what that does is it sets an expectation from the beginning that <clears throat> I know your expectations and you know mine. Right. So, and that's, and this is a business transaction. Right. So, to anyone who's wanting to be a master engineer or who is, uh, I'm pretty sure Sam, as well as myself, recommend to create a mastering checklist that you use with your clients. Yeah. Yeah, I found using a checklist has just made the whole process smoother. Like, it... It just opens up conversation between you and the artist or the mixer to really um, get all the details that are needed to get their project, you know, out for a proper release. Mm-hmm. And I found that, um, you know, people really learn a lot during that process from that checklist sheet because a lot of what's on it within the codes and DDP and sequencing, they don't understand why that's important. And most people haven't even thought about it, which part of that is hiring me. Like old mastering engineers used to pretty much pick the sequencing that was part of their job. Um, And now it's not so much, but I still have people that, you know, probably like 20% of the time they'll ask me what I think about the song order and how I would order it. Um, And that really is important. And um, basically, like backstory on that would be, and this touches on vinyl, is the the sequencing of the album was done based on what the vinyl could cut. Um, Mm -hmm. And basically... And time frame as well. Yeah, and time frame. And so you would traditionally put up your most loud and essentially fun high instrument count tracks up front on the album and then mm-hmm. buy track three, four, five, depending on length. As you get closer to yeah, the inner. As you get closer to the center, you put your more ballads or like things like that that were less bass heavy or less instrumentation. And that then carried out into CDs, which is why when CDs came out, you would have the same pattern, which wasn't even necessary, but you would still most likely have two to three up front really high energy songs and then you would pick a few down songs and then you would switch back to high energy songs and then you would end with like kind of some ballads again which mimics the vinyl sequencing um, and it's just which interesting which is kind of funny because CDs read inside to out yeah so it's the opposite and CDs don't yeah. have that limitation do you ever see the guy who cut a uh, I, I, he, I think he just has a mono like presto lathe yeah and I think he did one song on a CD because he can do it outside in. <laughs> so he cut outside in and then yeah. the rest of the the rest of it was finished on the CD. Yeah. I just thought that was pretty amusing. That is amusing. <laughs> but yeah, not to not to get too much into vinyl yet, but um, it's just really important like the mastering checklist sheet just sets everybody up to have clear expectations on how the process is going going to go, how the album is going to be put together, and I've found you know, in the years I've been doing this, that expectations are like the most important thing because usually at the mix stage, when they're done with a mix, some people 
are still unsatisfied with their mix because they either like ran out of revisions or it just doesn't sound right. Like they they just couldn't get, you know, the low and figure it out or something. And so as a master engineer, it's it's our job to hear those expectations, hear those things they feel like need corrected or enhanced and um, you know, and and try to reach that goal for them. Yeah. And I've just found like half the battle or all the battle within this is communication and learning how to interpret what people are saying. So within the expectations, if someone says they really want like stuff to hit hard, you have to figure out what does that mean because hit hard to me probably means something different to you, Matthew, and it probably means something oh, different yeah. to the artist. So even when they give you references, um, something that's really helpful that I've found to help people is if they give me a song they like, I will ask them specifically what they like about that song. Um, and maybe it's the way the vocal sits, maybe it's uh, the overall tonality, maybe it's the kick drum, the way it punches or feels. Um, because a lot of the times references people are giving, they're not necessarily wanting it to sound identical to that, but there's a few elements within it that they're really mm-hmm. looking for. And if you can pull those out of your client um, and get those expectations, then that really sets you up to win because it yeah. helps you pick out a signal chain. So for those that have mixes and you know, you're know you getting ready for a mastering engineer to do that, make sure you kind of sit down with your references and really think about why do I actually like this song? You know, What is it about it that I enjoy that I can kind of tangibly tell my mastering engineer so that he or she can, you know, pick the signal chain that'll best serve the song to get that. Um, So that's kind of my experience. Like the expectations are so important to make sure everyone knows kind of where the song's at, where it needs to go, and if you have, you know, the tools at your disposal to get it there. So that's kind of my thought on all that. Yeah. And uh, what do you think about um, people sending you a mix for, like, pre-approval? Yeah. Like, I, b- like but before you even, like, like not even for mastering, like, do you right. charge for that, or is it just kind of a service you offer? Yeah, I, um, I encourage people to send me their mixes ahead um, because, A, I like helping people, um, and, I, and yeah. I used to mix a lot, so I kind of know the lingo and how mixing works. I have a pretty good grasp on that. So I can communicate pretty well with them. Um, But the other thing is, at the end of the day, the better the mix, um, the better my master will be, and that will reflect, Mm. you know, me better as a person um, and as an engineer. And so I always want the best end product, which I know you do too, Matthew. And part of that is listening to the mix and kind of being that first, um, like that first third set of ears or unbiased opinion that kind of gets to hear the song um, for the first time and go, whoa, uh, have you guys, what do you think about, you know, the vocal where it's sitting? Like, it feels too loud or there's too much sibilance or, um, you know, the guitars are way too loud, you know, in the stereo image and it's like dwarfing everything else. Um, So I have no issues doing that. I don't charge for that. Um, it's part of, I think, building the relationship up. Um, and I think it should always be a two-way street, just like when I deliver a master, I always deliver something that I think is ready to go. 
Yeah. But that doesn't mean that it can't be mastered or adjusted differently. You know, there's like a million ways mm-hmm. to master something and they can all be <clears throat> good. And I think the goal for me is to always really like give, try to give my client, you know, exactly what they want um, while also me kind of using my expertise on enhancing what's good and hiding anything that's going to hinder it from translating. And I think part of that is getting the mix and listening to it and, and giving some feedback on whether or not it's really ready um, to be mastered and whether or not it's really going to sound great. Um, and a lot of the times, the adjustments are very minimal, you know, and very minimal mm-hmm. adjustments can make a huge difference in mastering. <clears throat> um, and, you know, it might be, can you just pull the kick drum up, you know, a dB, or can you pull the snare down, or can you, you know, can you look at the vocals and see if there's any buildup here, you know, at 300 hertz or 600 boxiness. Yeah. And just kind of communicating with them the spots that I know become a problem once we start getting, I'll say, modern loudness um, going. Mm-hmm. And that's something like mixers and producers just don't really understand, and they shouldn't have to understand it. It's good for them to be educated on it, but it's, you know, we're getting hired to do that role, to know that information, to know all of that. And if you're a master engineer and you don't know anything about that, then there's just no way to give your you know, your client the best in product. Um, and so that's that's kind of what I do. So I let people send me mixes. I'll give them critiques all day. And usually they'll go back and fix stuff and send it back. I'll listen again. And usually after one, you know, one revision, we're pretty much there yeah. uh, with them making tweaks on the mix. And then I'll master it. And, you know, most of the time it's good the first round. But if they have another, you know, revision or idea, I can make some adjustments, or we can even, if they have a, if they have to go back and adjust something in the mix again that still isn't quite <clears> there, I'll usually allow like maybe one round of that, unless we're like fully changing a part. You know, if they're yeah. like, well, let's try a whole different baseline, then I kind of have to restart my whole process and approach. Mm-hmm. I feel like, but that's kind of my thoughts on that. What do you What do you do with that? I have zero problem with people sending me their mixes. If nothing yeah. else, I like get kind of excited be out of the whole thing of like no one else but me and the people who made this know what this sounds like. Yeah. And I get kind of excited and I'm like I really wish I could share this, but I can't. Yeah. And normally if it needs a tweak here or there, <clears throat> I'll uh, obviously I'll suggest that. Um, I've had times to where I make a suggestion and then it comes back and there's like a whole different guitar part added <laughs> to it. So, but then it gets into the whole thing of like, whoa, dog. Sorry. <laughs> no worries. We're, we're leaving that in. Yeah, let's leave that in. <laughs> but then it comes to the whole thing of, uh, uh, are you hearing this track for like the first time? And is that like kind of screwing you up and whatnot? It's like, cause you can, like, well, like we said in a previous episode, you can only hear a track for the first time once, um, but in all honesty, I'd rather uh, I'd rather be able to be like off. I'd rather be able to offer a better service to like my client, yeah. Than to be like, no, 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 can't hear it, can't hear it. And I'm not saying people who do that do not offer a good service. The people I know who do that offer quite arguably the best service that I've like ever seen. Um, <clears throat> And I hear nothing but good things about them. It's just how they 
work, and I hope one day I can be like them. Yeah. Um, but I'll finish this little segment up with a quote that I read in an article of Tape Op that when they interviewed Bob Katz. Yeah. And it says, the best advice I can give is have a relationship with your mastering engineer. Yeah. And see what he or she suggests before you finish your mixes. Yeah. So, I mean, that's all that this is about. Like, music's about relationships. Totally. It's like, you might as well, like, start that communication off early. Like, the mastering engineer isn't going to be frustrated if you do that. I mean, some might be, but Sam and I aren't. So if your mastering engineer is frustrated, then come to us. Seriously. (laughs) We'll gladly help you out because all we want to do is help you make awesome music. Right. So and that's I, not a plug, that's just reality. Yeah, and so. I would say within that, like, if you, you should never feel dumb talking to a mastery engineer. Like, no, I know people have switched to me because they always just felt um, dumb or like looked down upon because they didn't understand all the process, like all the nuances of mastering and and really the expectations. And with a lot of the larger companies, um, you know, you don't you don't even get a conversation. <laughs> like, you send I your call, mix. In. I call it the uh, the gun store metaphor. Yeah, and I know some people who probably listen to this are probably anti-gun. Well, we're in uh, we're in the South, so <laughs> <clears throat> we can be pro-gun. Or I don't know if you are, Sam. But um, anytime I've ever gone into a like a like a a gun store, just looking to do some target practice or something. There's always somebody in there who's ex-military or ex-law enforcement. And, yeah. I mean, I'm 100% pro-military, pro-law enforcement. Thank you so much for everything you do every day. You are incredibly undervalued. But the people who normally work in there, yeah, they always look down on you for not knowing like this like strange caliber of right. bullet. And it's like, how do you not have this? Or how right. do you not? It's like, bro, I'm like, I'm just trying to defend my family. Like this is like home defense here. Like right. I have like another job. This isn't like like when I was working in the cigar store, I wasn't like looking down on people for not knowing the newest release of right. the, like Perdomo cigar line or yeah. like, hey, have you tried this new Arturo Fuente Opus X in this weird size? It's like, come on, bro. I know. So and it's like every time I go into one of those stores, which I try to not anymore, uh, I always feel like I'm talked down to. So don't yeah. feel like you're going to be talked down to right because like like we know it like a we we just operate in a different world right yep um it's like when I mean, we'll get into to headroom and stuff like that but I'll have someone come to me and they'll say um like Sam convinced me to bounce projects at minus 1 and I actually really like that yeah. as a, as an output and they're like, well, how come I gave it to you at at this, but now it's at minus one? Yeah. And I said, actually, believe it or not, there's another value system beyond that. Right. That technically it's louder, but this whole fader region, like it does, it just it doesn't even matter almost. Right. That's yeah. It's like you have like RMS and luffs and all that right. junk that's all behind it. That's actually the loudness as opposed to, like, what's just reading on the fader. Right, exactly. And as opposed to, like, your digital headroom there. Yep. And so it's just, like, just because it's, like, people know, like, a different in and out, it's, like, we'll explain it to you and we'll take all day to because right. ultimately we want you to have a good experience with yeah. stuff. Absolutely. Yeah, it's, it's just really <clears throat> important to work with someone who cares. <laughs> like, Oh, yes. You should never feel dumb. You should never feel intimidated. And you should, you should only leave the experience feeling like 
you learned something and that you got a great end product. And if you don't have the, that's what I think, you know, and what I like about you, Matthew, is like, you really invest into people when you do projects. And that is what I do too. And I think that's how you change like the whole atmosphere of mastering. Because I feel like mastering is definitely, it's in a weird spot right now. And people don't understand what it's like to have a proper relationship with a mastering engineer. So they're missing a whole step to making music. <laughs> like a lot of the frustrations that artists have with mixers, it's actually not a mixing problem. It's that someone tried to faux master. Like, yeah. <laughs> and your issue is that mastering does have a vital importance to the process. And it is able, it's not like a, like you just do it to clean up and and make your music sound good. Like mastering is for enhancing things and making things better. And there's tools at the stage of mastering that require a special skill set. Just like learning how to mic, you know, a drum kit correctly. Of course. You know, um, and I just think that's, you know, with this podcast, like I just want people to know that if you find a good master engineer and someone who like you connect with and you can communicate with you're going to see a huge difference immediately in your end product like you're going to get mm-hmm. your music back and it's going to be better than you ever thought it could be and that's like that's what a lot of my clients say is like they never knew it could sound so good or not just good different polished like whatever they want to say you know good's like a moving target um oh, yeah. with with audio but it's just it's more so they never imagined like the vibe in their, you know, what they've had in their head could be captured so well from a process like mastering. I feel like this could be a podcast in and of itself. Probably, like, yeah. The first three bullet points. <laughs> yeah. But that's But I have I have a rule that uh I developed pretty early on in another business venture. <clears throat> it's one of the few things I carried on into this is that I don't want to work with anybody that I do not want to grab a beer with. Yeah, that's and great. I take that to a literal sense in that I might not grab a beer with you every time if you're a return customer or client or whatnot. Right. I mean, if you ask, hey, you want to grab a beer, normally I'll say yes. I mean, who wants to turn? Like, that's like a love language. It's like, <laughs> why right. would you not do that? Right. Um, but in general, it's like, before I work with you, if you're a new client and you're like in town or close or whatnot, it's like, hey, let's go grab a beer. I really want to know like about your project, where you are with this, what's the heart behind it. Right. And especially if it's a, like a full length or something like that, like you need a really solid ebb and flow to the album and let's like nail the sequencing and how you want like the whole deal to go. Yeah, absolutely. It's like, that's important. It's stupid important. And I mean... It's a good and a bad thing. It's like, luckily, I'm not, like, stupid busy. Right. Like, with clients and stuff like that. But I could be. Yeah. Um, But, I mean, luckily, I'm not stupid busy with clients, so I have the opportunity to get to know everybody and to, like, and I try, like, even after I finish a project, at least, like, the past, like, six of them or so, I, like, will put up on my website and I'll write a little blurb about them. Yeah. Uh, try to promo as much as I can, and I try to make an experience out of it. Yeah. So, I mean, it's yeah, more for you about. than it is for anything else. But it's like let's like have a have a thing. Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, I think so. I think that is all good. So, you want to um, like we might we might need to crank through this list because this is a long <laughs> list. Yeah, let's keep moving forward. 
So moving along, Matthew, let's talk about how to prepare, and let's talk about budget. We need to address that and talk about it. So let's talk about money. Yeah, and I mean, as awkward as a thing as it can be, it's, I mean, as much as, like, people can be flaky in the music industry about, like, art and stuff like that and may try to get something for, like cheap or always trying to get a deal or something like that. It's like, this is something that uh, needs, it almost needs to be in the beforehand category. Yeah. But in terms of how to prepare, this is the first thing that you should prepare. Yeah. And it's a budget and, I mean, you're going to look at your wallet and be like, before mixing and before engineering and tracking and uh, pre-production and everything, you're going to be looking at how much money do I have to spend on this record? Yeah. And you need to factor mastering into that. I mean, and I, I've, we, we listen to these podcasts so many times uh, just in editing and reviewing and whatnot, and something that Sam said is that, you know what, if you're going to have a, if you're going to want a professional service, then you're going to have to pay a professional rate. Right. And I mean, that's like, it's incredibly important. Right. So it's like, if you want some dude who's going to master your album for $15, like for the whole album. Yeah. Then find that dude ahead of time and let him know and book out his time. I don't right. know, probably he's not doing much, but um, I mean, in general, book out that time. Yep. Um, I'm not to this point yet to where I am taking money up front before a project starts. I'm normally after like the band's approved everything and whatnot. Um, Sam is, you need to book out my time and yes. this is how much it costs. Yeah. And if you want my time, then <laughs> this is crude. If you want my time, I want your money. <laughs> I don't know if that's the right. Way to I mean, say the it. mindset behind but it is. But you book out the time. Is yeah. I'm just. I mean, I'm busier now. In the yeah. The logic behind it is not that I'm trying to take people's money up front. The logic behind it is when you get busy, you have a schedule, and if someone is behind, or a mix gets behind, or any. You know, when you're when you're busy and a say a project gets bumped two days, that impacts every other project I'm working oh, on. Oh yeah. So for someone to even deliver a day late requires me to reorganize my whole week or even month, like depending on what we're doing um, and how busy I am. That's yeah. where like the money with with the money up front, it just tells me that you're ready to go. You know, like you're. You're ready for mastering, and you're willing to put in the money because you're going to have to pay either way. I think that's the thing with budget and like half up front or half at the back end or even payment at the end implies to me that you may not pay me for the other half. Like if you want to do a half up front mm-hmm. and then then you get to decide if you're going to pay me on the back end, like... That's just not how professionals work, you know? Yeah. Like, there's no... I just don't understand that logic, and I and my, I mean, I get it. I get why people do that, because I was in a band 10 years ago, and I, I did that, too. I was like, I'm not giving anybody any money, because all I've been told my whole life is the music industry is shady. Like, people yeah. steal your money. And so that's where it comes from. So I get that, and and the reality is a lot of people have been screwed over, like... Not yeah. denying that. I've had that happen. Um, 
but it it just implies it kind of sets up the relationship to not really be built on trust. And when mm-hmm. it comes to mastering, like trust is such a big word that has to be like appreciated, and there has to be trust in your master engineer that they're going to deliver what you want, you know. Mm-hmm. And when you're like, oh, I don't really want to pay you the amount of money because I, at the end of the day, think you're going to a never deliver a product or b it's going to be so bad that I'm not going to pay you. Like, you got the wrong mastering engineer. That's the yeah. wrong relationship. That's a terrible way to start the the fun creative process of mastering. If that makes sense. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of like my shift to trying to take money up front was. A, I'm able to give people their product on time more consistently because, you know, it, it is like I usually start working when people pay me so or they get booked in. And if people don't pay me, then I don't know. They just, I don't start working on their project. Like, it's as simple as that. Like, you just, yeah. I think part of the music industry that needs to shift is this idea of compensation and payment of, I'll only pay you at the end, and really, I'm doing that because I might not like like what you do, you know? Yeah. So then that gives me the right to not pay you for your time and all the effort you already put in. Yeah, and And I guess I have this, like, thing about me that it's kind of like, I need to cut my teeth a little bit longer before I can request payment up front, but, I mean... I, I just think that budget was one of those things that we needed to to hit on first. And it's like, have a budget and know what you want to spend on it. Yeah. If you can't afford the mastering engineer, I mean, of course, ask if there's any type of, like, discount he can cut right. you, he or she can cut you or whatever's right. going on. Yeah. And, I mean, normally if I'm doing, like, over 10 songs, I'll normally cut a little bit of a break. Right. Um, but I mean, if it's, I, I don't normally do a lot of full lengths. I'm normally doing like EPs and singles yeah. and whatnot. And um, if I get a full length, I'm like, okay, yeah, like this is going to be a little bit more of a process. I know like right. there's some engineers who like that's all they work on and they're like knocking out a full length a day. And I mean, right. that's awesome. Yeah. I like would love to get to that level. Yeah. Um, but I mean, in general, it's like, let's just talk about it. Let's have a conversation about it. Right. Write, write down like in black and white what your budget is. Yeah. And like let's like let's move forward from there. Yeah. So that's the first thing. So yeah. You have any more you want to spill on that, Sam? Well, I just think that what I see most often is people haven't even thought about mastering. You know. Yeah. So they know they have to have it, and this is part of why I like doing what we're doing with podcasts is helping educate people on mastering and why it's still yeah. really valuable and a part of the creation process. But I think if you're working on a project and you're an artist, if you're listening to this, when you approach your next single or EP or album, figure out who you want to use for mastering like from day one or talk to your mixer who's going to be mixing it or your producer and ask who they recommend and then contact that person you know, before the project even starts and get the rates or even... You know, listen to their work and make sure it's someone you want mastering it because some some engineers like in town or mix engineers only will work with certain mastering engineers. Mm-hmm. But some it's of the a trust thing too. It's a, it is a trust thing, but some of the artists don't want that mastering engineer to touch their work. But it's this yeah. weird dynamic then of the mix engineers like, well, 
so-and-so only masters my mixes. That's the only person I trust. And the artist is like, well, I don't really like their work. I like this guy's work. And then, you know... I mean, there's a point there, too. Yeah, there is a point, but it's it's just one of those things where as an artist, you know, from day one, you should think of mastering as part of the process. And that that should be budgeted for. Um, And everybody who has ever, to me, like, tried me out or tried a good mastering engineer out from then on they always budget for it it's like a, mm-hmm. a no-brainer like maybe for them a lot of people say like that was one of them the best you know the best money we spent the whole project was in mastering to have it done properly because mm-hmm. it really can change everything especially in a full length like if you have a good mastering engineer master your full length and it you know he or she balances it out really well from start to finish and you know, does sequencing well and everything that goes into it of making the work feel like one complete, you know, album that literally can change everything about the songs mm-hmm. and the way they're, you know, they, the order they're in and everything. Like, I don't know. I just, I'm so passionate about it because obviously I do it for a living and I've seen the benefit of it for people when they get it back properly mastered. Um, and so with the budget, yeah, it's just, figure out what it costs and budget that in. Just know that, you know, that's part of the process. And if you're and if you decide that you don't want to use an actual mastering engineer or the mixer is like, oh, I'll just master it, you know, at the end for an extra hundred bucks or something. Mm-hmm. Just know that that isn't the best in product and to basically stop like <laughs> to work so hard on something. And like to give your all into something, and then on the last like 10, 15% of the process, just be like, eh, whatever. I don't want to spend money yeah, on it. Like, it. just don't even start the process. Like, it's yeah. not worth it if you're doing this for a living. Um, if it's like a hobby, that's something different. But if you really want to compete sonically with what's out there and have a really great end product, then like, I, like you were saying earlier, you got to. You got to work with professionals, and professionals charge a professional rate. And the rate usually is honestly fair or under. <laughs> I feel like because I mean, I, what, what, I think we're going to release like our second or third podcast, and it's going to be like like raise your rates. Yeah, it's yeah. Like you're not charging enough, right? It's like, so normally it's like undervalued. Like the person is charging way lower than technically yeah. what they're worth. Yeah. They just don't know it. Yeah, they don't know it. They don't listen to our podcast. Right. (laughs) But yeah, I mean, it's just, it's one of those things where like, you don't know the value of it until you hear the difference. And that's what I always encourage people to to try. And like, I have no issues now doing samples for people because I've learned that if I can just show them the difference, then a light bulb clicks in their head and they go, oh my gosh. You know, yeah. I wish I would have used someone for my last three albums, but I was just mm-hmm. told it didn't make that big of a difference or it wasn't that important. And, you know, then they have no issues. They have no issues paying the rate even, you know, because they see the value in it. And that's... Yeah, I was watching a video yesterday where uh, someone who's pretty popular on YouTube was showing how to master your own track. And granted, his track sounded better Yeah. Uh, after he quote-unquote mastered it and... <clears throat> I mean, I guess you could call it mastered at that point. If yeah. What you were doing is like, like making it sound better. Right. Um, in some sonic way. Yeah. But it's like at the end, it's like, 
But there's like no value that you're adding to it because it's like you're listening to it in your same room. Right. Like with the same like preconceived notions that you've had about the album the whole time. Exactly. And it's like like what I, I, I actually don't know because I've never mixed an album and then mastered the same album. Yeah. Like like are you thinking about mastering while you're mixing it? Yeah. So Or is it like two completely different mindsets and yeah. it's just like yeah, you just like like, how are you devaluing it by mastering it yourself? Right. So I master a lot of what I mix, and the approach I have into it is, since being a mastering engineer for a while now, is I know what mastering does to a mix and what it can do. Mm. So I am actually, and this is part of forming a relationship with a master engineer, is your mix should not sound like a final product. And a lot of people might be like, well, that's stupid. Like, why would you do that? But the way you get to the end product that you hear, like on the radio, is you get to that point by the master engineer being, the master engineer is essentially given a mix that sets him up to win with his mastering tools and his skill set. Mm-hmm. And so you should be mixing in a way, if you have a relationship with the master engineer that the master engineer, like, you should be mixing your songs to fit the next step. And I think that's where the big issue is, is people are mixing as if, and they're referencing master tracks, so they're mixing it to sound like a master track, which is almost impossible to do, to mix it, Mm -hmm. to sound mastered. Because there's certain things that happen within the mastering process with overall EQ and balance and overall compression or multiband, whatever you use, you know, even converting... Um, that gets you the sound that you're chasing. And at the mix stage, it shouldn't sound like the commercial ready track. Mm-hmm. And I just, I think that's where like the big confusion is, is mixers now are under this pressure to deliver a track to their client that sounds like whatever reference they've been going after. Yeah. And that's probably like 90% of the time you know, the issues, when I do have issues, it's people that have limited their mix already and made it really loud or compressed, and it just sounds kind of thin and floppy. And they think, I will be able to fix that, but the only way I can fix that is if they basically take off everything they've done on the mix Mm -hmm. bus. (laughs) Because then it's in a place where I can actually work with it and manipulate it and enhance it to be what they're actually chasing, like that sound they're trying to achieve. I mean, were, don't get me wrong, like, if you have, uh, I don't even know what you would call that, like a working master. Yeah. Um, I mean, send yeah. that to me, because right. that's all, or send that to us, like, that's a essentially a reference. Right, yep. And it's like, hey, this is kind of like where I was thinking along the same exactly. lines, and generally we'll, like, overshoot that. And it's, right. um, I actually was worried one time, because I returned a master that was quieter right. than the... Uh, than the sample master, the working master. Um, <clears throat> and I was like, I really hope this guy... Um, well, I, I was like, we'll see how good this mix engineer is because yeah. it's like the tonality was insanely better right. than what I received, yeah. even though it was quieter. Right. And you can get into these weird head games of like volume and stuff like that. Right. And, um there's a story that Bob Katz tells uh, somewhere on YouTube, I think at uh, an AES conference, about how this guy got a converter 
and he thought it was way better than the converter he had and everything. Yeah. And then at the end of the story, he realized that, oh, well, this is just 0.2 dB louder, like miscalibrated. <laughs> yeah. Like above like what actually was going on. Yeah. And it's like even that little bit of a bump can like completely screw with totally. you. Totally, yeah. So, yeah. and I was, I was like, and, and the guy was absolutely blown away and he loved what I did and um, we still do work to this day. Yeah. And I'm really thankful for that and... Um, like his ability to recognize tonality as opposed to volume. Right. So, yeah, yeah. I would. I. I don't know if I got lucky there, <laughs> or, <laughs> or what, because I don't think everybody would be that way. Right. Totally. So, well, you want to move on uh, down the list a little bit? Yeah, let's do it. Okay. Cool. So, uh, how to prepare? You need um, mix labeling uh, to decide on track sequencing, track names specifically. Yeah. Uh, spacing and crossfades. Yeah. Um, this can get uh, kind of interesting, and I've had times to where it's like you're halfway through with stuff, and yeah. like stuff will change, and sequencing will change. And the reason why that's kind of hard too is because I'll normally master an album, um, like per how it's arranged. Yeah, that's how. I and will too. it's like some songs will be louder than others, and some will lead in a little bit louder, and so there right. might be a little bit of uh, automation in there as well. Yep. <clears throat> to put a little more emphasis on certain parts. And then when you kind of get into spacing, it's like, okay, well, this song might have, like, an insanely long tail that is intended to be there. Right. Um, And you really won't need spacing in between songs. Um, uh, One specific uh, instance, and I don't know if this ever hit an album or what, and I don't even know how to pronounce... Um, the name of this song, but if you were to look up on YouTube, I think I think the band's called Sigaros. Yeah, Sigaros. Yeah, yeah. Uh, they have a song that they did at Abbey Road. I do not know how to pronounce it, but if you go onto Google or YouTube and type in Sigaros or Rose and type in Abbey Road, you will like find this incredible like nine minute and fifteen second uh, recording. Yeah, that is. It's like it's like act, absolutely beautiful. Yeah, and. I've seen people post it to Facebook over the years and saying, I'm pretty sure this song is playing in heaven, like, when you arrive. But at the end of it, they have, like, three minutes of silence. Yeah. And the camera just kind of pans around, and this whole orchestra and everything else, they're just silent. Yeah. And they're just sitting there. And that was written into the music. Yeah. And it's like, how do I work with that? And I imagine if that were in an album, I don't even know. I haven't looked it up. But it's like how that would space. It's like right. obviously after three minutes of silence, which was intended, there will n- like not be any more silence after that. Right. So you'd want to put a song right there. Yep. So that was the most extreme case I could find. And look up that song. It's really freaking yeah, awesome. Yeah, check it out later. Yeah, do it. It is, it's like mind-blowing. You'll, yeah. like, you'll probably cry. <laughs> <laughs> it's fantastic. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, uh, do you have anything to add on that? Sam? Yeah, I would say with sequencing, one of the most, like, time suck things is, like, not mm. knowing the order of your album or changing it after the masters have been approved. Oh, yes. Especially if you're doing gapless playback. So, like, the song, <clears throat> basically it doesn't sound like the song ever ends between song to song. Because every time we make an adjustment in mastering, we have to reprint the song and if it's a gapless album, you have to reprint usually both songs. You know, the mm. one that's wherever you're moving the hard cut or transition, that's going to impact the next song, so you have to reprint that one. So you could literally, like, and this isn't really, like, 
the mix person's fault <laughs> or the artist's fault. But like there's been projects where I've literally spent like two days reprinting things because sequencing Yikes. wasn't clearly, you know, documented. Mm-hmm. So like I master the whole album, I deliver and they're like, oh yeah, we want gapless between these songs and these songs and we want it to mm-hmm. be like this. And then the best thing you can do for that is to is to already do that and send that with your mix, like as a reference yeah. of how you want it to flow. That's so, so, so helpful. And everybody that I work with pretty much does that who does gapless, but there are those times where it doesn't happen. Mm-hmm. But that is just like... <clears throat> I'm guessing at where you want the crossfade to be, and people don't understand that it takes a lot of time to print something. And not only do you print it, but then usually I will listen back to make sure it printed correctly, you know, without errors. Mm -hmm. And so you can see how, like, okay, you print the whole album, and that takes X amount of time. Then I have to listen to the whole album again just to deliver it for a client to be like, oh, can you just move the transition here a half second and this one over here a half second and this and then then it's a whole other, you know, three to four hours of like <laughs> going back to tweak things. Um, yeah. And then also, you know, it is true, like if you, if you're approaching a whole album or even an EP, you want the, you know, you want the flow to kind of build or you want to have different moments based on the tracks or what the artist is wanting. And if you start to switch that up, then that can totally impact how you would master a song where you may have mastered a song one way to be track number three, but now they want it at seven or eight, and now you're using a different chain or a different overall EQ or the way you automated it, you know? And that really impacts everything, and as an artist, you have to go back then and listen to the whole new flow, at least you should, Um, yeah, and make sure it's actually, it is actually what you want. and so I would just like the wisdom behind all this is just me saying, you know, really spend some time with your mixes before you get to mastering and figure out what order you want and make sure it really is the order you want. Because once we start mastering, like, <clears throat> it's way more tedious to go back and like try out things, you know, than to. Yeah. So, yeah. So it's just important, like, I always tell like my mixers or my artists, like there's zero rush in the mastering process. Like mm-hmm. you have the mixes. Let's get this right. I know you're excited. I know you want it out, but like take some time with it and make sure this is exactly what you want in the order you want before I even like create the session. Because it really it's the whole uh, measure twice, cut once. Yeah, possible. and it and it does impact the way I approach an album, like. If you're oh, yes. changing the whole sequence, then I'm I'm going back going, did I do that right? Was that the right choice then? Do I need to start over? Mm-hmm. And if I have to start over, it just delays things and it makes everybody, you know, <clears throat> it just it just takes time to do it right. And that's fine, but it's just something like people don't realize. And yeah, you know, and, I just and if you like completely shuffle the deck, it's almost a remaster. Yeah, it really is. Like to a degree, um, yeah. That's Some people how I would feel. disagree, right? But yeah, I mean, I feel for, like it's for me. I'm I'm going back to the drawing board, going, okay, I need to review everything and make sure this flows right, you know? Because even the transitions, yeah. even on a a non gapless album, like I'm doing the endings of the songs are always different. They're not always like three seconds of dead space every time. Like <laughs> I will fluctuate 
based on the flow of the song. You know, how one ends and how one starts. Sometimes if you're really super high up volume and upbeat and they want a quiet song next, you need usually more mm-hmm. dead space for your ears and brain to like readjust that. Okay, we just got done with a really big moment and now there's some silence and now I'm kind of getting back to neutral. Oh, okay, I'm ready for this more, you know, quieter song or ballad type song. And if you switch those up, then, you know, you got to change the ins and outs of them and that impacts the whole feel of everything. So mm-hmm. I think it's really important. Maybe some people don't, but <laughs> I think it I, mean, I think it I matters. Think I think it's pretty mission critical. Yeah. So that was my thought okay. on, on sequencing with yeah. that. So moving forward, yeah. um, real quick, uh, deciding on what you want to receive back from mastering. Yeah. Um, do you are you going to be making physical like presses, not like vinyl, but um, I guess that's a physical press. But are you going to be doing CDs? In which case, you'll need a DDP, right? Um, ideally. If yep. you're going to be having somebody else do it, I, mean, I know some people who do their own, and they're just like, "No, send me the wave." Right. Like, oh, right. You're going to do your own spacing too. Right. Um, or do you just want to see, receive the wave? Um, some people ask for MP3 back. I try to advise against that. Yes. Just because you want the general, like, highest quality that you can. Right. Um, AIF, like, like, what do you want back? Uh, right. In general, uh, normally it's just DDP or wave. Right. Yeah. So. Yeah, and as of now. Every major distributor only accepts 44116 still, except mm. for Master for iTunes, which you have to do that specifically. It's 24. And it's 24-bit. But other than that, I get this question all the time from people who are like, why did you send me back 44116? You know, we were working in 48 or 96 or even higher. And, you know, their their thought process is correct. Like, you know, I want the highest quality, which I'm like, great. I'm glad you at least like understand that. That's great. But if I give you back 4824, you cannot get your music right now on any platform. Like, yeah. they don't accept it. CD Baby, 44116, TuneCore, 44116. I mean, those are the top two in the world mm-hmm. where like 99% of people <clears throat> distribute their music. And there is not a space unless it's mastered for iTunes and you're working with a master for iTunes engineer, there's, they will not accept anything above 44.116 WAV file. So mm-hmm. that's just like, I want to just clear that up for everybody because I get asked that all the time of some people like, I want FLAC 96. Like, <laughs> you don't want that. Like, I'll, I can give yeah. it to you, but you're not going to be able to use that except for in I your mean, house. I mean, maybe just like Bandcamp or something. Yeah, I mean, you could do, yeah, a third-party thing like that. Not, I yeah. guess, I don't know if that's called third party. But yeah, Bandcamp, you could probably do that. But for the majority of people, going with 44116 is still, it's accepted. And for all CDs, they're all 44116 still. So yeah. until that changes, until like the Red Book standard CD changes and streaming changes, um, that's, there's no, there's really no other format that you need other than 44116 wave like that will get you where you need to go to get your Mm -hmm. music out so I always try to help people understand that that I would also love to be able to put out something at 4824 or 96 like that would be great but as of now the distribution companies don't accept that so 
I just wanted to make that note there for everybody to. No, man, that's awesome. To know, I mean, that's that's later down the ro- later down the road. What sample rate and bit depth to submit, and yeah. what's the max that you should really do in per distribution? And I mean, that's really what the step is beyond a creative step. It's right. the first step in uh, in production, and it's yeah. like, hey, let's just like let me like help you right in like how your music is going to best like translate into this yeah. crazy digital world we're in. Yeah. Um, so, so yeah, that's kind of like that's you know sample rate, bit depth rate, and format. Uh, Matthew, you want to talk about codes at all? Uh, sure. Because I, I think, think codes a, are confusing <laughs> for people. Codes are confusing, and we'll probably tag team this one. Yeah, let's do it. So, uh, in general, if you're doing something for here, one second. <coughs> Bless you. If you're doing something for. Um, more than less a label, or if you're doing like a pretty high-end independent release, um, you can have clients who have uh, ISRC codes, which is a, which is essentially like a digital fingerprint for right. your track, and it comes back to like how like X gets paid, right? And that's why it's important. So, and then UPC is essentially uh, a barcode, yeah, that. Like it's that little code at the bottom of the barcode, and the bars line up in a specific way. And it's, yeah. um, it's funny in another business that I own, uh, and this is actually really important. Yeah, we bought secondhand UPC codes when we started out. Yeah, and the reason why you don't want to do that is because some people don't accept that. Like Amazon, um, when we went to go sell some stuff that we make on Amazon. It was ringing up as us selling a leather jacket. Well, we don't sell leather jackets, <laughs> right? And they're like, no. And so, and it was like five hundred dollars to buy all of these. So we yeah. had to go and spend the money again on like unused, uh, virgin codes, is actually what they're called. It's kind of yeah. weird, I guess. Yeah. Um, but I mean that it's it's very important. It's how stuff is tracked in a sales market, and then it's also how you get paid, right? Um, and then getting into metadata and artwork. Uh, when you get into a DDP and whatnot, it's just um, how CD players and um, players in general will um, display uh, track names and yeah. metadata will essentially, it's like it's like the little tiny information that goes along yeah. that never leaves the record like for the rest of its life and like who did what and... Um, yeah. Yeah. I don't know. What, what am I missing, Sam? I mean, you pretty much nailed it. I think the questions I feel like that I'm come up something. the questions that come up the most for me with it is like an ISRC code, which is international standard recording code. Mm-hmm. You only need one of those per track. <clears throat> and yes. So each track you have gets one ISRC code. And the ISRC code is and I love this word, the phrasing you use, like a digital fingerprint. That's like spot on. Um, I'm going to steal that forever. Um, but basically what it does is it, within that code, that code is registered to someone, be it me or a label or an artist. And that traces back to the people who basically have the rights to the song or are a part yes. of it. And that code also provides the information and should if your song's registered properly like with everybody which is a whole other podcast 
um, it should link back to help, like you're saying, identify who gets paid for royalties. Mm-hmm. So the ISRC code as of now is still important, and I think eventually it may move away. I'm not sure. But as mm-hmm. of now, it's still really important. And so you need one ISRC code per song, and then with the UPC, I usually say like the UPC follows the album or the work as yes. a whole. Yes. So you only need one UPC per album. And sometimes I'll have people like buy 10 UPCs and 10 ISRCs, which I mean, I, I provide SRCs, but I don't provide UPCs. Um, but yeah, you only need one UPC code for the album. And what you do with those codes, essentially, is you give them to your master engineer and we embed them, like you were talking about, with metadata via DDP, which can contain that, and we can embed it via, it's called a wave extension, which if you have a mastering program, it can embed that stuff. And then that gets pressed into your CDs, but if you're doing digital, and this is something I want to clarify too for people, is if you're doing digital release only, excuse me, your codes are going to be uploaded by you manually to your distributor. So when you go to TuneCore, CD Baby, or whatever, you're going to have to re-put in those codes if you're doing a digital release. So they're going to ask you if you have ISRC codes and do you have a UPC code. And that's where you put those in because I get a lot of people concerned about like, you know, I send them the song back and like, where are the codes at? You know, how can yeah. I find the codes? And I'm like, A, it's a code, so they're not supposed to be found. <laughs> you know? Yeah. <laughs> Unless you have the software and knowledge. So I was like, yeah. you're probably not, you know, I give them the list of them so they have the records, but I'm like, you can't really, there's certain things you can do to view it. <clears throat> but then I, you know, I tell them, if you're doing digital only, you're going to have to re-put in these codes anyway to want to get them to be tracked with your song. So... Yeah. That's something just for those listening. Like, if you're doing a digital release only, you're going to retype in all the codes anyway. So, you could rest assured that, you know, those codes are going to be associated with your songs if you type them in when you're doing your distribution. So, that's kind of it. And basically, I think, I think codes are still important. They're still accepted. They're still used. They're still an industry standard thing we do to track everything. And when you don't put a code up, or a code on your song, you're basically, once again, not not giving yourself a chance to succeed, not giving your chan- yourself a chance to get full payment, and it's also not allowing people that were involved or whatever to get the credit that's due because, like, the Nielsen sound scan. Basically, if you ever want to be considered for, like, a platinum or a gold album or, like, for anything that matters right now that we still say is... Say is we still say that matters, like they use code tracking to measure that. So if you don't have codes within your music, most likely you'll never be considered for, you know, the things that a lot of people are going after, which is like, I want a platinum album. Well, most likely you'll never get it because there's going to be no documentation of how many plays or sales you actually have if you don't have codes on it. Normally on invoices too, if someone declines to yeah. use ISRC or UPC, I have, a, I have a line item on my invoice that says, please note, exclamation point, no ISRC or UPC data was added to this project. If this yeah. is needed, please contact ASAP. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, it's like, well, not to use this phrase again, it's mission critical to, I mean, 
yeah, everything I think it is. that that song comes in contact with right. or album. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah, I think it's really yeah. important, and I think you know, and it's and I think the word code is scary for people, and yeah. the whole process seems intimidating, but it really isn't. It's just. It's just, just an identifier. Yeah, that's all it is. Yeah. It doesn't have to be scary. Um, and if you have questions, just ask your master engineer, or you can just Google it. Like it comes up immediately from the companies that actually, you know, own the the ISRC company <laughs> and the UPC company. Like you can you can buy them yourself, or <clears throat> like I've just I have my own account and I just provide those now since I I've been doing it for so long. It's just something I offer for free now. But it's yeah, it's it shouldn't be scary and intimidating, but it should be done, you know. Yeah. So if you're not doing that, I would encourage you to to work with someone who does do that, or just do some research on your own and make sure you you have that for yourself. So that's my opinion on codes. Yeah, I actually really like that because I kind I feel like I did like a nice skim of the surface, and then yeah. you're like digging the holes and. <laughs> yeah, well, it's it just and, it's just questions that come up, you know. All that, everything I'm yeah. trying to say is just, you know, the last eight years of mastering, like, yeah. these are all the things people ask and the, the things that, like, come up over and over again. And I fully understand it because mastering, like, you don't have to know what mastering is, you know. That's why you're hiring me. <laughs> but it is, it is part of, you know, the relationship part is if I tell you you should do something... Mm-hmm. So you can actually get credit for your song. <clears throat> you should not ignore that and be like, ah, whatever. Yeah. He doesn't know what he's talking about. Like, yeah, <laughs> I'm trying to help you get paid and get credit. <laughs> like, it doesn't benefit me. I'm not getting royalties. <laughs> so, like, yeah, this is only beneficial for you to you know to help you get the credit you deserve for your song and all the work you've put in. So, that's. Yeah. I mean, that's. I just want people to have clarity on all that, to know that. I mean, and, and that's what we're here for. Yeah. So that's what I think about codes, and this is a great spot to stop uh, for part one. And if you're wanting to hear more, we have actually put out part two, so you can go ahead and listen to that. Um, and let us know your thoughts or questions or things we might have missed. We would love to clear up any uh, confusion or answer any more questions that we've missed and once again this is the attack and release show and if you could hit the like button and subscribe button that would help us a ton so thank you so much for listening and whatever you're having have a good one there you go morning afternoon evening whatever you're having have Have a a good good one. one Thank you to everyone for tuning in. Cannot wait to see you all in the next episode. Thank you. Cue the music, Sam.